Thank you all. If you have your Bible, let's open it to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to take verses 7 through 11 as our text for today. And the subject of this passage of Scripture uh, are gifts in Christ. And so Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7, it says, But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive, and he gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is also the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might feel all things. And he gave some apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Let's pray. Lord, it is our honor and our privilege to come into your presence today. We are so thankful uh, to have your promise that you are gathered here with us today, that we do not have to make some great effort to try and call you down but that you have promised that where two or three are gathered in your name, that you are in the midst, you have indwelt us by your Holy Spirit, and you have spoken to us by your Holy Word. And so, Father, we trust what you have done allows us to come into your presence and your nearness today to hear your voice and to be instructed by your Word. I pray and ask, Lord, that you would help us to understand a little bit more about what you have done for us in Christ and that we would discover the gifts that you've given to us and that we would deploy them in full measure in the upbuilding of your body. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. If you remember, we have crossed the continental divide, if you will, of the book of Ephesians. Chapters 1 through 3 really are positional. They are talking about the position of the believer in Christ. And that had been our great emphasis all the way through that we are in Christ. But then there is this transition that takes place uh, as we leave chapter 3 like a watershed. We begin to flow in a different direction and we have entered into the practical side of Ephesians chapters 4 through 6. And you may think of it this way. What, what Paul did first was give us the positional. He wants us to know who we are, what we are, what we have in Christ, unshakable, unchangeable. I mean, he wants you and I to fully see ourselves as seated with Christ and in Christ in heavenly places so that from there we can carry out the practical side of Christianity that he wants us to live in this life. And so beginning in chapter 4, the Apostle Paul begins to speak about the practical, and you might think of it as the nuts and bolts or the inner workings of the church. And he is telling us what we can do and what we should do and things to avoid and how to remedy those. And so as we come to verses 7 through 11, uh, these verses are part of a larger passage or pericope. And, and it is actually bridging verses 1 through 6 about the unity of the church with verses 12 through 16 about the growth and health of the church. And so uh, chapter 4 verses 1 through 16 all about the church. 
And it begins by telling us that we are to keep, protect the unity that we have. And then he finishes this section of scripture by telling us that we are to be growing and that we are to be healthy. And in the middle, like a bridge, he inserts these verses about the gifts that we have in Christ. In verses 1 through 6, the apostle emphasized the unity of the church, how that there is one Lord, one body, one baptism, one faith, and he says that we are to endeavor to keep that unity, that, that it's a big job, and it's one of the primary jobs of the church is to guard and to protect the unity that God has given to us in Christ. And then in verses 7 through 11, he informs us of God's divine designed diversity in the church and so unity verses 1 through 6 there's diversity in verses 7 through 11 that may seem like a contradiction at first glance but remember last week uh, I closed with this statement and I think that it, it helps frame it for us unity is not thinking or acting or speaking alike but it is diversity living in harmony and so when we think about the unity of the church, it wasn't that God was making a bunch of clones. He's not cooker, cookie cutter stamping us out all to be alike. As a matter of fact, if you look at the disciples, uh, they are very different from one another. Right? You have one that uh, is uh, Simon the Zealot, which means he is anti-establishment down with the Roman government. And then you have Matthew, who was a publican. He's working for the Romans, collecting taxes from the Jews. I'm telling you, you couldn't get more opposite in political opinion between those two poles than what were represented there among the 12 disciples. And so what Christ is trying to do in building his church is not simply try to force us all into this one little mold where we do everything exactly alike. There is diversity in the church, but there is this greater power, this greater image, this, this greater worldview that comes with being a believer that brings the unity that holds these diverse people all together. It truly is amazing. Uh, notice how unity and diversity are laced together in this text. And so just look back with me, if you would. Uh, verse 3, he says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. And so automatically we know he's talking about unity. And then you go to verses 4, 5, and 6, and it's one, 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 one. Seven times he says, one body, one spirit, one hope. Uh, and and uh, we find it. And then you find this, this, this contrasting conjunction, but. right. So unity, 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 but unto every one of us, diversity. All of a sudden, it's not all one. Now it's every individual. And then he gave some this, and he gave some that, and he gave some this. And then he concludes, notice verse 13, outside of our text a little bit, till we all come in the unity of the faith. And so, as we look at this text of Scripture, you find unity and diversity laced together, woven together, because that is God's design for the church. This diversity is not just a difference of opinions or political persuasions 
or even ethnicities, right? You notice that, 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 that those are, that's, that's one of the advertisements for some churches. We are a multi-ethnic church. Well, congratulations. If you have a multi-ethnic community, you should have a multi-ethnic church. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, sometimes you're in a monolithic community and your church isn't going to be multi-ethnic, not because we have anything against any other race, simply because we don't have very many other races represented, right? And so what he's talking about diversity here that he's looking for in the church is not simply a diversity of opinions or a diversity of ethnicity. It is the diversity of the individual gifts that each of us have in Christ. And so, if you're keeping notes, first we see the diversity of individual gifts in verse 7. But unto every one, not the whole, but every one individual that makes up the whole, every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Paul states emphatically that Every believer, without exception, receives a spiritual gift from Christ. It's so important for you and I to understand that because, again, I believe that Satan, the great deceiver, has sold a lie to many uh, self-conscious believers to think that they don't have anything to offer the church. They are simply trying to do the best that they can and sitting in the pew and giving a little bit in the offering. And, of course, they pray and read their Bible, but, but really they, they feel like they don't have anything to offer. Maybe they feel like they can't sing or they can't teach or they're not gifted in this area or in that area. I'm telling you, that's a lie of the devil. The Bible says that it was given to every one of us. And let me tell you something about these spiritual gifts. These spiritual gifts are diverse by God's design. They are diverse by God's design. If, you, if you're adventurous this morning, hold your place there in Ephesians and just glance with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, we can't exposit every one of these texts of Scripture, but they are interconnected in that they are dealing with spiritual gifts. There are three primary passages that deal with this. It is 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, and Ephesians 4. They are all talking about spiritual gifts. Each one gives us a little more insight to form the whole. 1 Corinthians 12 begins with this, verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts... Brethren, I would not have you to be ignorant. Okay, we know the subject. He's going to talk to us about spiritual gifts. And we know that he doesn't want us to be uninformed about them. What do you know about spiritual gifts? What do you know about your spiritual gift? How do you determine what your gift is? How do you develop that gift? How do you use that gift? Now look what he goes on to say. We'll drop down to verse 4 where he talks about how that these gifts... Are diverse. He says in verse 4, Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Lord. Notice the unity. And there are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. And so as we put Scripture with Scripture, we understand that, that, that Christ gave a diversity of spiritual gifts 
to every individual believer. Interestingly, the, this diversity of individual gifts contributes to the unity of the church. Think about that. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12 highlighted that. There's diversities of gifts, but it's the same spirit. And there's a difference of operations, but it's the same Lord. And there's a, a diversity of administration, but it's the same God. Did you notice that in those verses in 1 Corinthians 12 that Paul represented the Trinity, Spirit, Lord, God? And in the Trinity, we have the greatest example of a unified diversity, do we not? It is uh, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit. But the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. And so in the Godhead himself, we have represented this idea of unity and diversity. And so he takes that and he uses that as he's teaching the church about their spiritual gifts. And he's saying, hey, look, they're diverse, they're different on purpose, but they actually contribute to the unity of the church in that no one Christian has all the gifts, Right? I know that we think that there are some superstar Christians, right? Maybe these mega church pastors or these uh, guys who have great campaigns, and it, it seems like they can do everything. I mean, I, sometimes I, I encounter other preachers, man, and like they can sing, they can preach, they can administrate, and, and then I, I feel like I'm a one trick pony over here, and I don't have all the giftedness that, that they have. But can I tell you, nobody, nobody has all the gifts. Why? By God's design. Because he wants you and I to depend upon one another to fulfill the mission that he's given to us. God purposefully designed it to distribute different gifts among the members so that we must unite together. If we're going to do this thing that Christ gave us to do, go you therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things. Go you into all the world, preach the gospel. If we're going to do that... You cannot do it alone. You and I have to assemble together in churches, bringing our diverse gifts together, contributing them in the same pot so that we can accomplish the mission that God has given us to do. Back in our text in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7, it states that these gifts are given to us according to the measure of Christ according to the measure of Christ. And that means that our Lord decides who gets each gifting and that he measures out the giftedness to each of us. You and I don't get to check off a survey when we get saved. What gifts would you like to have? Well, I would like to have exhortation. I would like to have prophecy. I'd like to... God doesn't do it that way. God determines what gifts you have. And interestingly, sometimes, and as I've administered the spiritual gift test in, in my next step class, I can tell you there's been many times when people say, you know, it says that I, you know, I, I kind of got this gift of the prophet, but I don't, I don't think, I don't see myself that way. And, uh, and so it's interesting that, that sometimes the giftedness that God gives us isn't what we would naturally incline ourselves to or see ourselves as. But not only does he choose the the area of gifting uh, he also is the one who determines or measures out the giftedness 
You see, the Apostle Paul wrote this to the church in Romans 12, 6, that, that other passage on spiritual gifts. He says, Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith. And so I would say this to you. You may have a little gifting in multiple areas, or you may have a lot of giftedness in one area. That is not up to us. It's up to the Lord as he explained once in the parable of the talents. Remember that? Uh, think back with me if you would. I know I'm throwing a lot of information at you, but you're in the advanced class, and I know you can handle it. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus gave the parable of the talents and he says the kingdom of God is like this it's like a master like a householder who had to go far away and he called his servants to them and to one he gave ten talents and then to another he gave five and then to another he gave one and then when he returned he called those servants in and he questioned them what did you do with the ten talents and he said well I made ten other talents well done what did you do with your five talents well I made five other talents what did you do with your one talent well I hid it in the ground I didn't use it and he did not get a well done, right? And so the point of that parable, one of the points is the fact that God doesn't give everybody the equal amount of giftedness. But the good news is that he doesn't judge you based upon the giftedness of somebody else. What did you do with your gifts? What did you do with your gifts? All right, man, if you've got a lot of gifts, then you're going to be responsible for a lot of gifts, like the dude with ten talents, but if you don't have a lot of gifts, God's not going to hold you responsible for that. He's not going to compare you to uh, Charles Spurgeon or George Whitfield or Billy Graham and say, why didn't you do what they did? God is simply going to look at you and say, I gave you these gifts. I gave you this opportunity. Uh, what did you do with what I gave to you? Now, remember, uh, this is a change of program. As the Apostle Paul is writing this in real time, this is a change of program from what God has done with Old Testament Israel. Read the entire Old Testament, all 39 books, uh, you know, uh, 929 chapters. You won't find God distributing spiritual gifts to people. It's not there. And so this is a brand new change of program during the uh, New Testament church development. And, 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 and as you look back in the Old Testament, they didn't have the indwelling Holy Spirit that we have in the New Testament. The Spirit came upon people. You will read things like that in the Old Testament. But it's not until the New Testament where you find that the Holy Spirit comes to indwell believers. And so Paul is giving instructions about how the Holy Spirit has indwelt the believer and how the Holy Spirit bestows gifts to every believer. Paul has been given new revelation from God for the church, and so he includes it as an explanation of the divine intervention of gifts that came with the incarnation of Christ. You say, that's a lot of buildup. Well, just buckle your seatbelts because he goes on in verses 8, 9, and 10 to say this, Wherefore he saith, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive, and he gave gifts unto men. If that sounds familiar to you, it's because it's a quotation from Psalm 68, 18 that we began the service with. And so the Apostle Paul reaches back into the inspired writings of David, and he, he pulls this forward, and he says, hey, look, this was pointing us to Jesus. He has led captivity captive. He's ascended on high, and he has gifts for men. 
But then, all of a sudden, the Apostle Paul realizes that he has to explain the divine intervention that took place there. And so, he gives us a parenthetical statement. The parentheses begins there in verse 9 and ends in verse 10. And so he makes the broad statement. Hey, he's given gifts to every one of us. How did he do that? Because he, he ascended on high. He led captivity captive. He gave gifts to men. And then he goes on to say this. Now that he ascended, what is it that he first descended, first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might feel all in all. Think of it this way. These spiritual gifts came online or became active when Christ ascended into heaven after his death, burial, and resurrection. Remember, he taught his disciples this uh, pre-crucifixion in John 16, 7. He says, it's expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come. But if I go, I will send to him to you. That word expedient must have been perplexing to his disciples because it means it's good for you that I go away. And there's not one disciple that thought it was good that Jesus went away, right? They were all scattered. They were all distraught. They were all broken up. They were all worried. They were all in fear. This is the Messiah. This is the one who's going to establish his throne in Jerusalem. He is the seed of David. He is the one who's going to throw off the oppression of the Romans. He's going to bring us back to our full glory. How can it be good for him to go away? And Jesus said plainly, it's good that I go away because if I don't go away, the Holy Spirit will not come. And so, we find another accounting of this after his resurrection. In Acts 1.8, he says this to his disciples, But you shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost. And then he goes on to say that immediately he was received up into the clouds. He ascended up into heaven. And so this, this transition that's taking place is because Christ had to come to earth, do the work of salvation, and then he had to ascend back to the right hand of the Father where he applies the blood of his atonement, and then he sends the third person of the, Holy, of the uh, Godhead of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, to come and dwell believers while they continue on the earth waiting for his return. Paul saw it was necessary to include this parenthetical explanation about the descension of Christ that preceded the ascension of Christ. In this parenthetical statement, the apostle describes how Jesus first descended to the earth and then to the grave before he ascended into heaven. You say, what's all this ascended, descended stuff? Well, just, just think with me for a moment. Do you remember on the day that Jesus rose again from the dead, Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb early, and she discovers that it's empty. Some of the other disciples come. They leave. She's distraught. Where have they taken him? She turns around, sees somebody. She thinks it's the gardener. Where have you taken his body? Tell me. I will go get him. And then all of a sudden, she hears this familiar voice when it says, Mary. And Mary falls at his feet, recognizing that it was Jesus. And Jesus says this, touch me not. I have not yet ascended to my Father. That's interesting. We've got to put those clues together. You see, before Jesus could return to heaven, he had to first descend 
into the grave. And he had to, he had to announce the victory. He had to secure the victory which was ours. You see, this critical information that explains uh, this ascension and descension is included so that we are without any doubt about the qualifications, the credentials, the power, and the authority of Jesus to distribute real spiritual gifts to us. You see, if we didn't have this evidence if we didn't have this, this reminder, this statement of the fact that Jesus did conquer death, hell, and the grave, he squared off with the enemy forces and he won, then we might have some doubts whether or not he actually had the power and authority to give us real spiritual gifts. And so Paul wants God's people to have no doubt about it. And he says, listen, understand what happened. Jesus descended to the earth, and then he descended to the grave, and then he rose again from the dead, and then he ascended into heaven because the work was finished. It was complete. There's nothing else to be done. Yes, there is still an enemy who is out there, but he is already defeated. God is simply allowing the plan and the program of history to be played out. And this is what Christ did through his condescension, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension. The Bible describes it in different places where it says in First Peter that, 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 that he went to the grave and he preached to the, the, the spirits that were in prison. It says that he, 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 he nailed our sins to his cross and that, and, and that he, he, he made a triumph over them openly. It goes on to tell us that in Matthew 28, before Jesus gave his disciples the Great Commission, he says, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. You see, Jesus reigns over every realm. As a matter of fact, Philippians 2, 8 through 11, after talking about how Jesus humbled himself to the death, it says God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name that the name of Jesus, every name should bow of things in heaven and of things in earth and in things under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you understand? There is a powerful enemy that is out there. And we're going to learn in Ephesians chapter 6 that he is waging war on us every single day. And we've got to dress for battle. But before we get to that, Paul wants us to know he's already been defeated. Our great champion has already went to the cross, went to the grave, and returned to the throne in heaven. And that is why he can give you gifts that empower you to do the supernatural work that the church has been commissioned to do. You see, that parenthetical statement was given by Paul to help the church recognize the divine authority upon which these gifts are based. And then the third and final aspect is the distribution of institutional gifts. Look at verse 11. As we round out this, this section of Scripture, 
It says this after the parenthetical statement. So let's just connect verses 7 and 8 to verse 11. Let me read them together and we'll set the parenthetical statement aside for a moment and you'll see the flow more clearly. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended upon high, he led captivity captive, and he gave gifts unto men. And he gave some apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. This is not an exhaustive or conclusive list of all spiritual gifts. Again, if we go to 1 Corinthians 12, we go to Romans chapter 12, we go to Ephesians 4, we find that, that there are many spiritual gifts that are listed. And so the way that this is stated is not just that these are individual gifts, but what he identifies in verse 11 are what I would call institutional gifts. That is, he gave these gifted people to the church. He gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. And so the way it's worded, it's not just saying he gave some the gift of apostleship and some the gift of prophecy and some the gift of evangelism, but he gave apostles, he gave prophets, he gave evangelists, and he gave pastors and teachers. So not only do they receive the gift, but they are the gift. And that's a true statement about every one of you. Not only did you receive a gift from Christ, but you are the gift of Christ to the church. And so what we know from a study of Scripture is that these are not the only spiritual gifts that God gives. There are many others, but that all of these gifts are given for the upbuilding of the body of Christ. That's the whole point. You say, why did God give us these gifts? Just so that we can enjoy it? Hey, look at the swag that I got. You know, look at my gift. Look how nice this is. Is it so that we can strut around? Like, I, I'm gifted. I'm in the gifted class up in here, right? No, God didn't gift us so that we could prance around as if we are proud of ourselves. He gave the gifts so that we could actually contribute to the body of Christ. He gifted you so that you could make a difference in the body of Christ, so that you could actually be a useful cog in his machine, that there's a place for you, and that without you, it just doesn't run as efficiently as it would. 1 Corinthians 12, 28 says this, and it's interesting. You say, this institutional gift stuff, Justin, are you just making that up? Well, could be, I don't know. Just kidding. 1 Corinthians 12, 28 says this. God has set some in the church, first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers. After that, miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, governments, diversities of tongues. So there's a priority that he is setting. And it's not that he's saying these gifts are better than the other gifts, right? Because he, he explains that, that, that those gifts are, are the same. They're equal in, in their value. What he's saying is these gifts are foundational. These gifts are first in order to establish the church so that the other gifts then can be used in the church. 
These particular gifts are foundational to the church and can be divided into three functions. So don't faint, we're near the end. These three functions, apostles and prophets, are for the establishment of the church. Right? We saw that already in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, where it says that the apostles and the prophets are the foundation of the church. And so uh, those that were gifted with that, apostles and prophets, were given revelation from God. They had open revelation coming to them from God. And the prophets and the apostles were to proclaim that verbally, and they were also used to write that literarily so that we would then have the Word of God. And so they had to come first. God's delivering his revelation to his people and he does it through the gift of apostleship and prophet and not only were they speaking in their local assemblies but it was also being recorded in writing so that we would have those for all future assemblies by the way apostles and prophets still minister to the church today through the bible They are not actively today. There's no apostles today, whatever some may claim. They were for the establishment of the church. And then evangelists are for the expansion of the church. So he gave some apostles and some prophets, and he gave some evangelists. Uh, As you think, scripturally, there is a guy in Acts who is identified as an evangelist. He is Philip the evangelist, Acts 21.8. If you want to know why he is called Philip the Evangelist, you go back to Acts chapter 8, and you'll find that he was a deacon in the Jerusalem church, and that when persecution arose and they were scattered, he went to Samaria. And you know what he did down there? He evangelized. Evangelizo, he preached the gospel, and people got saved, man, mad, crazy, half the town, the whole town getting saved. And then, you know what God does? God calls him to go to a place called Gaza. Leave Samaria. Go to another place where the gospel is at. Why would I go to Gaza? There's no one in Gaza. Well, because there was an Ethiopian who was traveling back from Jerusalem to Ethiopia, and he intersected him at Gaza, and he he evangelizes him in Acts 8.35. He preaches Christ to him, and he gets saved. And It's believed that this Ethiopian eunuch then would have taken the gospel back to Ethiopia. And then from there, God calls Philip to go to Caesarea, which was the uh, the capital. The Roman capital uh, of the Israel territory. And so it is there where he then again resides as an evangelist. Uh, This evangelist uh, are what we might would call missionaries. Like Philip the evangelist in Acts taking the gospel to people and to places that have never heard it. What we often call evangelists today really would be better termed as revivalists. They're guys who travel around and preach to establish churches. And I believe that they, uh, they serve a function and that they do well and that sometimes God is using them to, to call out the called and to stir us up. And, and sometimes people do get saved. But in the biblical sense of the term, th- this evangelist is the guy that goes to a place where there's not a gospel witness and he becomes the gospel witness. He expands the church. And so... The gift of apostle and prophet for the establishment of the church. The gift of evangelist for the expansion of the church. And then the gift of the pastor-teacher for the edification of the church. Uh, As you think about this biblically, 
the word pastor is only used in this text of Scripture, at least in the King James. I'm not sure about other uh, translations. Every other time the Greek word is used in the New Testament, it's translated shepherd. So shepherd, pastor, same word, same word that's being used there. Uh, Pastor, teacher is considered by most theologians as referring to one office with two functions. It is the pastor-teacher who has the primary ministry of feeding the sheep through the teaching of the word. We find references to that like in 1 Peter chapter 5 where Peter says, As an elder, I speak to elders. And he says, Feed the flock, right? Preach the word. Paul says in Acts 20, 28, that, uh, that as he's speaking to the elders of Ephesus, that they're to take the oversight and that they are to feed the flock of God and to preach the word to them. And so we have these institutional gifts that, that Paul calls out almost as a sampling, as that same substructure that we found in 1 Corinthians 12, 28. First apostles, secondarily prophets, third teachers, and then uh, on and on and on because he is laying the foundation for us. And so I would conclude by saying this. These are not the only gifts, but they do serve as an example of the diversity, unity, dynamic that is programmed into the church of God. You say, how do these serve as a sample of the diversity, unity, dynamic? Well, consider that these gifts all have to do with proclaiming the word of God. What do those all have to do with? Apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. They all have to do with proclaiming the word of God. You don't find the gift of ruling. You don't find the gift of healing. You don't find the gift of miracles. You don't find the gift of tongues. It's not mentioned in here. Only these gifts. And they all have to do with proclaiming the word. But watch, they are distinctly different by God's design. They are distinctly different by God's design. And that diversity does not cause division. Ah, we're of the Apostles Guild. We don't fellowship with you evangelists over there. Well, you pastor teachers, you guys are just kind of like low on the totem pole. Don't speak to us. I'm a prophet, don't you know? No, not at all. It is actually the opposite. God is bringing unity to the church through the diversity of the gifts. And so, I would say to you that this was a discovery I made some years ago when I began the study of spiritual gifts. That I had noticed, being around church life, that sometimes people misunderstand each other. And sometimes an issue will come up, and there will be one person who's for it. Oh, yes, I think we ought to do that. We ought to put some money behind it. Yeah, we ought to do it. And maybe it goes to a church meeting and there's a vote and there's somebody else that says, I don't think we ought to do that. I'm telling you, it's got this problem. It's got that problem. And by the way, we could use the money to do something else. And then all of a sudden you got tension, right? Why are they opposing this? What are they thinking? Why are they for this? And when I discovered and studied the spiritual gifts, I began to realize that depending upon what your spiritual gifts, sometimes you, you have a different lens through which you're looking. And for instance, the lens of the prophet is not the same as the lens of the mercy giver. And that when I discovered that God's the one who gave us the different gifts, then all of a sudden I realized, hey, look, this isn't to build tension into the church. This is to build unity. We need everyone to use their gift. 
And we need people to be willing to express that and to be able to say that and for us to realize, hey, I'm a believer, you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit of God, I have the Holy Spirit of God. He has put us together in this assembly and if we bring these gifts together and we hear each other and we work with each other and we understand that we are both on God's side, then all of a sudden we realize, hey, this is for our unity, not for our division and this diversity actually helps us to be stronger. Because you know what I've discovered about myself and my own spiritual gifts? They're pretty myoptic. I'm looking at the world through this lens. Like, for instance, in this room, I'm only looking one direction, folks. All I can see is the fronts of your faces. But you know from back there, y'all have a different view. You see the backs of everybody's head. And so if I said, this is a room full of faces, and you said, no, it's a room full of backs of everybody's heads. And we got in a big fight over it, and we split the faces and the backs of heads. And God's in heaven saying, it's the same person. And that's the way spiritual gifts are supposed to work, right? God gives you a spiritual gift, and he gives you a spiritual gift, and he gives me a spiritual gift. And we see things differently, but when we bring it to the table, we get the full picture. And we are better equipped, watch, to preserve the unity of the church and then to produce the growth and the health that is desired for the body. If you would, bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment. Just a little time of reflection, just a moment to listen What's the still small voice of the Holy Spirit saying in your heart right now? Is he speaking to you about your spiritual gift? Are you wondering what it is? Do you need to discover that so that you can use it? Maybe you've had a misunderstanding and God's speaking to you about that and saying, hey, look, differences of opinion are fine as long as we don't violate the unity of the body. Whatever it may be, my encouragement to you is to speak back to God, to invite him to expose to you the full realm of what he wants to do in your life through his word, and then ask him for the help to do it. Heavenly Father, we just come to you realizing that every church is as fragile as an egg, so easily fractured. Lord, I pray and ask that you would help us to realize that we are both to be united and diverse. I pray, Lord, that our diversity would never supersede our unity and that our unity would never force our diversity into conformity. Father, we want to be exactly what you designed us to be so that we can be the representatives in this world, a light in the darkness, so that we can function and fulfill the role that you want us to do. We want to be a healthy and growing church. And so help us, Lord, to be instructed by your word in this so that we can function as part of the body that you placed us in. And I pray that in Jesus' name, amen.